Hi, I'm Dr. Ben Davis, and I took a left of the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with the religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith in unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Coming at you with the warm weather, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and I locked my keys in my car next to an abortion clinic. It was really awkward to ask them for a coat hanger. Oh my god! <laughs> but they would have many. <laughs> Joining me as usual is a team that wonders why they call them a rib condoms. They don't taste like ribs at all. Some of them might, okay? I would not be surprised if some were flavored. I would not like be surprised rants. either. She knows Jesus saves, but Satan does that tongue thing she likes. Nancy. Oh. <laughs> we can see Kevin's in a mood today. Hey, have you seen Lucifer, the TV show? He is good looking. Well, I know that. And she saw potassium and oxygen go on a date. It was okay. <laughs> And then I saw him. Oh, okay. I was going to do this hilarious addition to that joke that's like adding another, and I won't do it because I don't remember it. So I'll stop talking. And she was asked how much for the angry law gnome, but she said it was her fiance. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, welcome back. <laughs> oh, I hope you had a good week. You know, one of these days. You're going to shoot us, me for us, real one of these yeah, days, one aren't of these you? One these days, us ladies, women should get together and just do this you know for for Kevin? Of Kevin yeah we should do this as sort of a backlash we could just all roast Kevin yeah uh, you know what happened last Kevin. time you guys tried to take over the show and ended up building a catapult so. yeah but I did successfully take over the show yeah. that's right <laughs> <laughs> Took me a few weeks to get back. But, <laughs> but she's back now. Just, just Those brambles I landed in were pokey. That, that was only the beginning. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> Prank war. All right, so today we'll be talking to our old friend from one half of the skeptical Texican Rex Burke, and we'll be talking about cults. Yeah. Oh boy! Andrew Jasko was supposed to join us for this as well, but unfortunately he had to cancel. But that's okay. Aww, I hope he's okay. Yes, but first let's do a bit of chit chat. Uh, did you guys hear that uh, the country of Iran, you know, this bastion of freedom, has deployed an extra 2,000 morality cops? Oh my God, kill me now. To quell the increased defiance of the compulsory wearing of the hijab. <sighs> now, there's been for a while now a lot of women in Iran actually pulling off the hijab and saying, screw you, I don't want to wear this crap. Well, now Iran decided to deploy more moral morality police. Uh-huh. Um, the funny thing is, is these units are mostly women. They're not guys. Really? They're mostly women, and they have the power to arrest and detain. So uh, hundreds have been arrested, apparently, for, uh, for removing the hijab. Uh, also, cameras have been installed to catch female drivers that remove their hijab while they're driving. That's so oh. gross. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's Iran is and Islam is essentially retaliating for. So I wonder what pressure or what inducements they're using for the women to, you know, be um, employed this way. I well, mean, I, the the reason they state here is that when you're removing the hijab, you're actually uh, listening to the forces of oppression, meaning the West, and you're basically uh, they're trying to defy their culture. So they're the ultra, ultra, ultra conservative 
right wing. No, it the, doesn't even have to be ultra ultra conservative. It's just just a right wing Islamic. Yeah. Basically, they're saying the West is just trying to destroy our culture, yeah. and the hijab is part of our culture. You do that, you're basically an enemy of the of our culture or something like that. Yeah, I mean, but to betray another woman, you just yeah. have to wonder, well, you know, what whether or not there's you know some something in addition to. To the, the religion that's that's maybe the extra perks, extra I've something stated, for their children. I don't know. It's I've stated many, many yeah. times on, on this very show that, and the thing that's interesting about all this is women have been given uh, unofficially the titles of guardians of tradition. And they do the same thing in Christianity. Some of the most ardent defenders of Christianity mm-hmm. are women, that's you know, true. which is funny because it's a religion that also oppresses women. No, that's true. That's true. But how many times have you heard amongst you even ladies saying, somebody saying, well, you know, I don't really believe in, in the church, but I'm going to raise the kids Christian anyway because I want them to have morals or values yeah. or blah, 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 mm-hmm. which is bullshit. But, you know, somehow women have taken on that role. And they're doing the same thing, of course, over there. And I think I think it's a smart move on the part of the uh, Iranian state to put women to do that. Oh yeah, because you can't use the male oppression card no. at yeah. that point. No, I, I was going to say the same. We're on the same page with that. It's strategically, yeah. you know, it, it works. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You can't use the whole patriarchy thing and blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, it's Pride Month. Yeah. So um, there's celebrations all over the place, and uh, right here in Canada, um, the leader of the conservative. Uh, uh, party. party. Andrew Shear said he will not march on the Pride Parade. I'm so big, surprised. Big surprise there. Uh-huh. Uh, we didn't la- want him anyway. No. <laughs> la- last year he said he w- he supports the LGBTQ, but he doesn't think marching is necessary. Really? You support them? Well, I'm really surprised at that too. Uh, apparently he wagged his finger when Russia was basically cracking down on the LGBTQ, but that's about all we've ever heard uh-huh. from him. So it's, you know... Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I same thing with Doug I Ford. I definitely require actions more than words yeah. to believe someone when they say they actually support the LGBT, LGBT blah blah words. LGBTQ. Thank you, <laughs> community. At the same time, um, in case you didn't hear, um, I'm gonna pause here because I can hear the water in the background. She's peeing. <laughs> in the sink. Incredible. Why would she do that? Jeez. You don't get it. such an inside joke to my family. We have a bathroom, you know. Sorry, we were joking. <laughs> She's completely... <laughs> she was not the, girl, the girls were saying you were peeing in the sink. Because no, you could hear I the water. No, I do have to pee, but... <laughs> oh, that's not on radio, is it? It is. It's recording. Wait. Yes. No, don't worry. <laughs> we're... <laughs> You have to explain the inside joke. Uh, the inside joke of what? Peeing in the sink? No. Yes. Yes. So with my aunt, so we're going to get rid of all this. Um, Thank goodness. My aunt and I, when I lived with her, she would have this joke that when she would go to the bathroom, no, it was when I would go to the bathroom, she would say, I forget. Okay. You know, my brain isn't working today. I don't remember how this started. Every time she goes to the bathroom now, I always joke. Make sure you go to the bathroom in the sink. And we always joke about going to the bathroom in the sink. That is the worst joke ever. It's not a joke. My, <laughs> it I goes back to when they were like little kids. I, I okay. mentioned my brain isn't working today. <laughs> I did mention this. I do promise when her this brain is, gonna, is actually this is working. This is going to be a good this, show. This story comes across a lot when, funnier. When Christina's brain doesn't work, it's going to be a good show. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, okay. Due to technical problems, today's episode... <laughs> due to being rained out. Right. Okay, let's no, continue the show. full medication. All right, let's continue. Um, okay, speaking of gay pride, uh, did you guys hear that in Boston, they're proposing, somebody proposed to do a, a straight pride oh parade. Oh my gosh, oh my I God. did. <laughs> oh, I just loved on Reddit the roasts. Yeah, and uh, gave and me life. That's exactly it. These guys have been actually been roasted a big time on, on social media, even by uh, stars like uh, Chris Evans, who's Captain oh, America and all that. He is the true captain. And the funny thing is, the funny thing is, the the group that is called Super Happy Fun America. That sounds like super gay to begin with. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it sounds like a super gay name to begin with. Oh. And I'm trying to find here uh, something that I got from uh, someone David. doth protest too much. <laughs> yes, I would I would say so myself. Uh, this is from uh, David G. McAfee uh, that we, we've had on the show before who posted on uh, social media um, a picture that basically says, you know, people who think we need a straight pride parade or a white history month are kind of like people who look at handicapped parking spaces and say, why don't I get something like that, huh? They don't care where it exists. They don't care that they get the whole parking lot. They're just mad there are four spaces in front of the Walmart. They're just not for them. And that's exactly it. I think that encompasses exactly what you hear when you hear these people saying, "How come we don't have a street?" Yeah, it's like it's it's like another entitlement parade. Yeah, they ought to call it every just day a street pride parade. parade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's like they straight people have never had to worry about being murdered by their family. That is They've the whole never point. Had to worry about showing affection to their significant other. Yes. They've never had to worry about being fired. Or being ostracized from their community, like it's like they don't have to like be pride have that, have that outward show of pride that that is brave to show because it's there's no pushback for being straight. That is the whole point. That is the whole point of the gay pride parade. It's not because they're flashing being gay. They're flashing the fact that they're being accepted in society. Yeah, and that we're not afraid anymore. Exactly. In that, like that. They're, they're celebrating we, the acceptance. Yeah. Uh, and and if you're, you're asking for a straight pride parade, well, you you're already accepted. You don't need yeah. that. You know, it's like at that point you're just being a petulant child, in my opinion. Okay, moving on. We also had the celebrations of D-Day we that did. just happened this mm-hmm. this past this past this past week. Now the funny thing is, is <laughs> there's a survey that was done uh, that um, in the Britain that, that basically found that 57 percent of the people asked, um, only 57 percent of the people asked chose Germany as the country that we were fighting against when D-Day happened. Wait, who did they think? Well, that's the funny thing. It seems that people are not understanding the history here. Uh, They've uh, talked to about 1,800 adults in the survey, and this was a poll done by the Royal United Services Institute. Um, Basically, 3% said that uh, uh, when they asked the people what what was D-Day... 3% 3% of them said it was when war was declared on Germany. Really? 15% said that it was when Nazi Germany surrendered. 13% said when the UK evacuated France. And 16% just didn't know. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. And uh, out of a list, like I said, 50% of people picked Germany out of the list of possible bad guys during that war. It seems that people are forgetting history really, really quickly here. Well, either either that or they're not being taught properly. That too. You know, so when you forget something that you haven't learned properly in the first place, that's what you get. Because well, I don't know who these people were that were in the survey, where they were, mm-hmm. but it's distressing nonetheless. Yeah. I, I also think that it might not, not necessarily be they haven't been taught properly, but that when you learn things, if 
there is no connection to your everyday life and you don't see importance in remembering it, it's easy to forget it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So last generation, you had people whose parents were involved in the Holocaust and, and fighting that war. Like us, my grandpa what like was in the end of it mm -hmm. and he's he died before i was even born yeah so like i have no one who fought yeah. in that war that i know that that's another thing right i mean uh, there are very few veterans of world war ii left mm -hmm. i mean except for nancy of course uh but <laughs> but you know uh the these storytellers when they disappear then the collective memory might really yeah kind no of be I, I i definitely think that is going to be the main issue is time which is of mm -hmm. course going to be scary because that gives power to conspiracy theories like you yeah. know the holocaust never happened yeah. and shit like that and if people are not taught the proper history and mm -hmm. they, they come up and this is only 75 years ago it's not that far back right, right when you think about it yeah. see see for me what i'm actually more worried about is that people forget the things that led up to the war mm -hmm. and when they happen again <clears throat> donald trump we won't be worried because we won't have that connection to yes, the past and be like, exactly. okay, this happened before. Exactly. This is what it led to last time. Yes. Let's do something different. If if we don't have that connection to the past, then It'll repeat everything itself. repeats itself. Yeah. yeah. There, yeah. there was this, this meme posted by our friends from, uh, uh, all the atheist friends from Matthew there, and he basically posted and said, oh, thank you to our veterans. It was really nice to have 75 years without, oh my God, na without I saw Nazis. This. And then there's a picture of Donald Trump. You know, I was like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Point well taken. And you know, and, and, you know. It's sometimes when you look at the, the the parallels of what we complain a lot about U.S. politics, and you know, they say as soon as you evoke the name of Hitler, you've kind of lost the debate. I'm not so sure this really applies in these cases anymore. Well, I, I think you know, taking you know Christina's point, in in public schools and in charter schools, wherever kids get an education, you have to teach the history. It has to be a part mm. of their curriculum mm -hmm. so that they don't forget even though you may not have the grandfathers and the other members mm -hmm. of the family who are directly involved you have to teach what yeah. led up to the war yep. and what happened and what d-day mm -hmm. was yeah. and, and remembrance I, day and all of those things and when the schools start making shortcuts and calling it all social studies yes. or whatever it yeah. is yeah. rather yes. than taking you know the cultural aspects and historical mm -hmm. aspects separately yeah. that's what happens and i really think this is a function of and and, and i i'm hoping there are maybe some teachers out there that uh, will call will uh, let us know mm -hmm. um, if i'm wrong but i really think it's because it's just not being taught the way it was when mm -hmm. um, you know back in the dark ages you know when i went to school yeah. in the grass hut well and i i think it might actually be um, uh, an example of how the way we teach things yeah. fails children yes because the way a lot of schools right now they teach for tests yes they, they teach do. okay you have to remember this date this you person's name tests. exactly yeah. so it's a i performance think base. what schools need to do for this to actually be more in like a better way of teaching is teaching for relevance mm -hmm. in society today yeah and because that's how people remember things they remember it connected to themselves because people I, are very self-centered i think i think you you've you've right you've got the perfect word to connect uh if i if i was a history teacher myself and you're teaching world war ii mm -hmm. why not get a few relics an actual relic or two from the war and pass it amongst the students so the students can mm -hmm. see the helmet worn by a soldier with a bullet hole 
and they can really make the connection about how real this is because mm -hmm. touch is really that sense that we have that makes things real. Yeah. If you read something in a book, it's it's almost like imagination. It's almost like a movie. It, it could be a lower fantasy. When you actually have something in your hands, you can actually touch and it's tactile. I think it makes that much more of an impact. Oh, yeah. yeah, it always does. And I'm sure, you know, some there are some instructors who teach that way mm -hmm. because they realize if that. If I was an history you, teacher, I would. Yeah, because, you know, we use all of our senses to help learn and, and to remember. It's a, it's a matter, I think, of having it in the curriculum and, and having World War II more than three or four days or a week or, you know, chapters, you know, six through eight mm -hmm. and then moving on to something else. So it's the relevance and how that works war is important to your life mm -hmm. right now and how different it would have been if it had turned out different mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. exactly yeah. oh and by the way for in case you always wondered what does d-day stand for right well, everybody knows d-day but what does it actually mean do you guys know Nobody can Isn't really. It when they stormed the beaches of Normandy. Yes, but yeah. what does the D in D? Oh, I have for? no idea what the actual what D stands for. That's a funny for. thing. Nobody really seems to know. But the general consensus is essentially is just meant to say day, like D day as being the day as like you know today is the day that we're going to invade. H as uh. the hour. So H hour basically means the hour oh, okay. is going to happen, and D day is basically the day. The D-Day, if you wish, where the the, the fight's going to happen. I think it was, was it Eisenhower because I think he was in charge. Eisenhower, Eisenhower named it, and uh, yeah, know. yeah, and there's... I'm almost sure this is going to show after after uh, being so brazen about history. I'm now going to show my ignorance, but I really I think it was Eisenhower. Didn't you date Eisenhower for a while? <laughs> no. Pardon? Didn't you date Eisenhower for? Well, <laughs> it was a fling. I, nothing, Before it was president. There's before. nothing in in the publications at this point. Let me put it that way. There's nothing yeah. published that would indicate one way or the other. Yeah. Um, you know. And speaking of uh, D-Day, just to blow Canadian horn a little, um, the Canadian troops on that day were the only ones that actually accomplished their mission fully. That's right. That's yeah. right. Because so, we're the best. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of Canadian pride there. You know, they also say that when you talk to historians, they say when the Germans saw the Canadian flag, they braced for the worst. Yeah. They really did. Um, although we were a much smaller part of the war effort than yeah. you yeah, Well, to be Britain. fair, we had a lot less. But we were there from the beginning, America. <laughs> so, for the record, now, now. don't mess with Canada, guys. Yeah, don't true enough, true enough. We'll just yeah. throw a hockey box at you and slap. slap I them. remember, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is going back talking about tangible things. But there were a lot of movie theaters back in the, the 40s that um, had nothing but uh, news, the Metrotone news, mm -hmm. whatever it was. And you paid a certain amount of money you know, for your ticket, and then you could go in and out every day, or they had the, um, the films going you know, uh, in a loop mm -hmm. so that every six hours they changed or every four hours you changed. And the D-Day films took a while to get to the States yeah, of course. because, you know, they, they had to get the, the films processed and then, you know, sent to different places, however they did that. But I remember uh, around that time, the movie theaters were just jam-packed with oh, people sure coming because you could hear it on the radio when it, you know, pretty much immediately after, after it happened. But people wanted to see 
uh, mm -hmm. what happened. And you can just imagine, you know, how brave those photographers and news people were, you yeah. know, to have filmed that. But I remember the the uh, movie tone news mm -hmm. going, you know, with people coming, you know, by the hundreds in and out to watch those films. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to Because there was no TV in the yeah. 40s. You guys you had didn't to go, have Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's hard for us to imagine, uh, well, I mean, besides Nancy was obviously there, uh, you know, what it was like. But they say, uh, if you want to have a good idea, he says, you watch the beginning of the uh, movie by Spielberg, uh, yeah. Saving Private Ryan. Saving, Saving Private and it gives Ryan. you a very good idea what that day yeah. was like. And I haven't watched the show, my, that, that movie myself. It was a scary, scary thing. It's like, oh my God. There I were a lot of people that walked out after, you know, oh, they couldn't yeah. even, they, they couldn't watch the rest of the movie. When, when the movie, when movie first premiered and they showed it to some some veterans of mm -hmm. the war uh, there were some veterans that were caught like crying absolutely openly crying because it was like taking them back on those beaches yeah so actually like, i think in uh my history class we actually watched saving private ryan mm -hmm. yeah uh, and of course the whole movie just devolves into yeah. some weird story but well, um, yeah though those first few minutes are show the horror of the, the that day and the war mm -hmm. at, at its peak so anyway so uh, let's let's not forget our veterans, and let's do a, a favor for the next couple of generations. Because yeah, you know. because just to close off again to Christina's point, in in the forties, those of us in the in the states, because I I was I was in the states at that point, we had members of our family mm -hmm. that were in the war. We had friends and uncles and aunts. I had an aunt who was in the wax and we would walk by people's houses and see the stars hanging in the window that people, you know, if they had someone in the in the armed forces, they would put a star in the window mm. uh, so that we would know. So it was, and we had the rationing coupons. I mean, war was a daily reminder. Mm -hmm. yes. it, there wasn't a day that went by that you didn't know that, that something was happening and people you know, we're we're a hundred percent involved, and I think it is difficult for people now to understand how how involved mm -hmm. we were and how immediate you know every every battle was. And to to finish this off, one of the thing, one of the biggest lessons of that war, especially in the U.S., that I think we seem to have forgotten, was how we beat the Germans. And it wasn't a question of you know. Um, military strategy and all that it was a question of how we converted these factories in less than six months from making cars into making tanks how everybody just stopped dropped what they were doing all of a sudden they were focusing on the problem at hand mm -hmm. and when you look at the politics of today and we're facing something like something just as terrible as world war ii something like climate, climate change. change and people are just oh yeah we'll fix the problem in 20 years yeah no, no we won't be around no. in 20 years no 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 it needs we need to have that same kind of concerted effort you know saying okay yeah. we're stopping this right now and we're changing to do this and to tackle that problem this is what mm -hmm. is actually needed instead of the, the pushing and kicking anyway yeah one little, one little teeny on tiny there. point of, of trivia um, one of the things that was impossible to get were silk stockings, and women wore, you know, nylons and silk stockings, but you couldn't get them because they were using them for parachutes. <laughs> so women, women were so um, caught up in fashion and in looking exactly the same, they actually painted their legs what? the same color of stockings, <laughs> and then took a little brown 
pencil and and made a, a seam, line? Really? a line going up the back so that you would look as though you still had wow. those stockings on so that you didn't look like you had bare legs, which was not acceptable. Is it, is it the same fashion. color they use for Donald Trump's fake tan? Or? Yeah, but I think so. I yeah. think that's where it was. It's kind of like an orangey, brownish. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you see pictures of women in the 40s and you look at their legs and you see that seam, there's a really good wow. possibility that they drew it. I remember women drawing that line on. I think we should do that on Donald Trump's legs. <laughs> Patreon goal. There. Send us your money yet. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, just one, of those little, just one of those little trivias from yeah. the, uh, the immortal woman here. Yes, that would have been good for a disdain history. Remember that. Anyway, Nancy, you got a top ten for us, my dear? I do. And this is part two from last week. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, when we had all of the Canadian candies. And anybody remember what was number one? Macintosh. Macintosh, yep. right. We had um, Maynard, Maynard's wine gum. And, yep. and That was my favorite part coffee of Coffee crisp. Um, yeah, coffee camp. crisp. Getting the Macintosh. Yeah, the Macintosh. Okay, so here we go. And let's see if, if this comes out to be pretty predictable in terms of what you like and, and the American yeah. candies. Who knows? We might have never had some of these. That's quite possible. That's right. Yeah. Um, number 10, Almond Joy. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. I haven't had them, but I've seen them. them. <laughs> that came from Peter Paul Candy Manufacturing in 1919. Peter Paul? That, that was called Peter Paul Candy Manufacturing. Sounds like a Christian thing. <laughs> I, I, I literally make Peter pop off. Actually, Ted, Cadbury <laughs> bought them out. But I don't know whether Peter and Paul were the two guys that, that started it. Or was it was that cool Christianity thing didn't really take off with them. They went to candy. Yeah, could be. Anybody, anyway, the Almond Joy with coconut. Oh. Mm. Okay. Number nine, Milky Way. Oh, yes. Anybody Heard of it. No, haven't Milky. tried it. I haven't. I haven't. Oh, I haven't Milky Ways them. are... Um, they, this was in 1923, and it was named after a malted milkshake, not the galaxy. And it really tastes like um, a solidified milkshake. You know, it's got the it's got the the, the coffee malt, the coffee on the um, the chocolate on the outside, and then chocolate malt flavored mm. nougat and then mm. caramel in the middle. So mm, it's caramel. yeah, it's not think... crunchy. It's a very soft. Oh, that sounds really I, that does good. Sound really good. Yeah, yeah, it it can be. Okay, so now you're gonna start looking yeah. for the. <laughs> I just milk. I think they sell them up here. I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure. If I've seen them, they sell them up here. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm gonna have to buy. I should have thought of this. <laughs> should have bought a whole bunch of samples. I'll have to, I'll have to buy oh some and bring gosh, them back. Oh my gosh, that would have been so fun. Yeah, that's Except then it would just be. Become the old candy hour. Yeah, I think I'll. I'll do that. And then we can have a review. Ooh, exactly. Ooh, that would be fun. Okay. Number eight, Hershey's Cookies and Cream. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, you know, that, isn't that funny that <laughs> yes. Milky Way is in many ways much more popular in the States than Hershey's Cookies and Cream, but they sell the cookies and cream up here and maybe not the Milky Way. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, well. Number seven. I love everything Cookies and Cream. Three Musketeers. Yes. yes. Yeah, you like the Three Musketeers? What do you like about the Three Musketeers? I've actually tried them. Yeah. I don't remember actually. I know I've had them. I can't remember. Yeah, 1932. Wow. And they're made up of three pieces and three flavors. That's why they're the Three Musketeers: vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. But I don't think the strawberry is as popular. 
is no, no, the, the, the vanilla and the chocolate. But anyway, it's a single piece of fluffy chocolate flavored nougat covered with milk chocolate. It's similar to Milky Way in, in some ways. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's the same kind of a soft, you know, it feels, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely rich feel. Mm-hmm. As you're a lot of these chocolate bars are kind of repeats of the same kind of ingredients, just assembled different ways. Yeah, yeah. Number six is Twix. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody Not knows Twix. That's good. Um, that's made by the Mars bars. And okay, Mars, Mars bars, bars are amazing. Good. Yeah. I love Mars bars. They're my yeah. favorite. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's good stuff. The Mars Candy Company goes back a, a long way. So there's a little cookie and caramel and chocolate. Chocolate's a biggie, I guess, in, in candy. Yeah. 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 Who would have thought? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Number five, Kit Kat. Yes. Huh? Actually, Not surprised. Yeah, Kit Kat was, it was a British invention. I don't like really? Kit Kat stuff. In 1935. I do like <laughs> they were originally called Chocolate Crisp. Oh. Kit Kat is so much catchier. Yeah, it is. So you, everybody's had Kit Kat? Yes. Oh, I have, but I, I do not enjoy them in the, any way. They're yeah, one of my yeah, least favorites. You're just weird, okay? I you know. don't like chocolate. What's, what's wrong with you? I like I the know. new flavors that Kit Kat has been doing. Well, not the new flavors. They've been around for a little while. But Number four, Hershey's Milk Chocolate Bar. Everybody That's knows a classic. Hershey. That's a yes. classic. And for so many years, they never advertised. They no. didn't have no, to. No, they didn't have to. You all said it was a big Hershey. It all says it's Hershey. Who has to, says- I mean, really, when you think about chocolate, nobody has to. If people are they gravitate yeah. toward chocolate. It's just an addiction that, that yeah. most people have. Anyway, That's Hershey's was in 1900. Oh, wow. By wow. Milton Hershey. That was his actual actual name, named after him. And uh, I remember way, way back, you could buy Hershey bars for a nickel, and then the price oh, went God. up. I they wish. Up for their, yeah. yeah they, but- they produced, speaking of D-Day, um, they produced more than a billion ration bars for troops serving wow. in World wow. War II. Wow. Yeah. And they just, they did it, I think, as a, as a war, you mm-hmm. know, their, their contribution to the war. Number three, Snickers. Oh, yes. Ooh, I yeah. do really like Snickers. Oh, you, that's interesting. Yeah, you like Snickers, but you're... There's you, caramel in it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the reason I like it. Oh, actually, I love peanuts. I have yeah. a ferret named Snickers. The, the Mars Company says that Snickers is the world's most popular chocolate mm, bar. You so think it's good. more popular? Because you don't know Milky Way, so I'm going to have to introduce you to that. But you... I'll have to do the Snickers and the Milky Way and then see which one. Oh, I'm going to like the Snickers. It has caramel. I like the meme where you have Jesus on a cross and says, not going somewhere for a while, have a Snickers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll have to do the review. Yes. So there are are a lot of of, uh, peanuts, too, that go into the Snickers. I love the Snickers bar. Number two, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, look at the, the reaction there. Okay, That's no, but great. Reese's peanut butter comes out. Okay, well, you know what? I, I've got a bit of a grievance. Okay, no, but I ice cream grievance. flavored so Reese, like Reese's Pieces ice cream flavor, oh. it's the best. It has like little Reese's Pieces I have, in it. I have a grievance with this. So okay. good. They melt I don't like your pe- mouth. I don't like peanut butter, oh, but it's the it. only way You're I can so eat weird. peanut butter is in a Reese's Pieces. Okay, but... Every time you take a Reese's Pieces cup, there's always it gets yeah, stuck so to the bottom to, of the cup. You have to 
lick the bottom of <laughs> you think they would have solved had, this problem yes they've had over 50 years to solve this by now come on guys <laughs> fix that stupid little stingy thing has <laughs> anyone ever gotten like their what are they they're like the quarter pound Reese's or yes. something like huge, like huge, yeah. they're so they have, they have kind of an, they have kind of an interesting interesting history because Harry Reese who is the Reese and peanut butter cups was originally an employee of uh, Milton Hershey and so um, Harry Reese decided to strike out on his own and to make a living in the candy business and he began to sell the peanut butter cups in five pound boxes. Oh my gosh, I want them. In the 1920s. I would buy so many. Yeah. <laughs> I would be like, and ten of those, please. Right. But he didn't quite Three make... days later. Yeah, but the, the, fun... yeah, the funny thing is that in 1963, uh, Reese's was not doing all that well, and Hershey bought the company for $23.5 million, mm. and it's still, but it's still a hit. So it's oh. interesting how it went full mm-hmm. circle. I love the way they did something for Canadians, because they have, they have this big uh, Reese's Hershey thing there, uh, but it's in the shape of a, a hockey puck. Yeah. Oh. And they have like an NHL logo on it or oh. something. <laughs> so it Let's just say Halloween is my favorite time of the year, because I can buy a massive bag of so just Reese's Pieces cups. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I just sit there so, okay, so review, so for review i'm gonna to have to get you milky ways musketeers and oh, just uh, get the whole thing yeah okay so now we're at number one what's number one for americans and candy oh, oh i have no idea number one for americans and candy I you know I don't know. There's so many. M&M. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yep. 1941, yeah. designed with the intention of bringing consumers a chocolate that wouldn't melt in their hands. And they're still um, still popular, of course, named after their inventors, Forrest Mars and R. Bruce Murray. That's, that's, that's where the M&M comes from. You know, I used to have a girlfriend that used to work at the M&M factory. Pardon? I used to have a girlfriend that used to work at the M&M factory. Hmm. She got fired because she kept, kept tossing away the W's. I like oh M&M. yeah. okay. Anyway, um, M&M's were given away to the uh, World War II uh, soldiers as well, and they even went on a space mission in 1982. Hmm. So what color do you think of the red, yellow, blue, orange, and red is the most popular? Red. Red. Yes! Oh. Go me. Don't they say, like, in, in the Smarties we said last week, that always eat the red, red ones last. But yeah. don't they say green for the M&M's? No, red for the oh, M&M's. Really? Bo- in both, both sides of the border. Oh, okay. It's red. Smarties and M&M's are sort of cousins, or maybe they're brothers and yeah, sisters. Well, ex- yeah, except there's, there's no peanut uh, Smarties or almond Smarties. They're just like the, the regular M&M's. Well, there's no, there's no, there's M&M's with no peanuts, too. Yeah, I know, but yeah. I mean, the, the original M&M is like the same as the Smarties, but the right. Smarties never went into... Elaborating to peanut and almonds yeah. and all that, and never did that. But I mean, I did. I don't know. I mean, there are people that can definitely. If you got a blindfold, they can definitely tell you if you're eating a Smartie or an M&M. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm one of those people. Is it the chocolate or is it the? It's the coating. coating. Oh yeah, the coating is so because different. Because if you remember the last time when we were talking about this, I mentioned the yeah. Smarties how I used to like them, but now I don't because they did something to the coating. Uh, or maybe your taste bud just changed. I was saying the same up. thing. Or that, but I still I like M and M's. Maybe better. you're just a traitor to getting candy. I actually like M and M's more than Smarties. Okay, well, well. you're both traitors. It's the peanut, though. <laughs> okay, well I'm gonna bring I'll bring them, then I'll bring some Smarties <laughs> and M and M's, and we'll just we'll just see. Have how, a yeah. contest, how it turns and eat out. off. Yeah. <laughs> also, Smarties are flatter. 
Yes. Oh, they're, okay. they're, they're a bit smaller, too, I think. Yeah. All right. That was fun. Isn't that yeah. fun? Yeah, that's always fun to talk about. Talk no, about kids. Reese's Pieces. Now, on that note, does anybody <gasps> remember wait, Nerds? Wait, wait, wait. wait no, yes. no, no. Okay, but Willy Dairy Wonka. Queen. Dairy Queen has Reese's Pieces cakes. Oh, my God, they do. Ooh, and it's delicious. Oh, it's the, they're the best thing on this planet. Yeah. They're ice cream cakes flavored like Reese's Pieces. Nothing good it's ever came out so of Dairy good. Queen. Oh, oh, last, um, excuse me, their uh, ice cream is magical. Nothing good ever came okay, out of Dairy last Queen. Question, Guys, there, we need yes. stage revolt. <laughs> is there an American candy that you've tasted that's not on this list? Oh, God. Uh, I'm sure there is. Um... I'm surprised Old Henry wasn't on there. Yeah, well, Old Henrys are good. Henry's. That's, a, that's a pretty classic They've been a long, they've been around a long has, time. has anyone had the spicy Skittles? The what? Ooh, they're spicy Skittles. Oh. They're at the movie theater, there's different M&M's. No? Oh, hi, Jill. How'd you come here? <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> they're just appeared out of nowhere. They're surprisingly good. <laughs> they're not like... She's back from Planet Colob. <laughs> they don't burn your face off like you think, oh, we're going to make something spicy but, and it just like kills you. But they're they're really good, actually. The movie theater, there's Mexican jalapeno M&M's. What? English toffee M&M's. <gasps> what? <gasps> toffee! Where? Where's the movie theater? At a movie theater. We yeah. should go. We should all just go see Endgame later today, and just for the candy. <laughs> <laughs> Life with Pets Two is really. Anyway, cool. that was a far left. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are left at the valley. Yes, yeah. the other one too. I can't remember the name of it though. I always, I always like the, the candy coated almonds that you get yes, when you go to the good. movies. Yeah. <laughs> Glossettes. Uh, I'm surprised Glossettes. Oh wasn't yes, Glossettes. I always liked the raisin ones. I never liked the raisin that and ones. the peanut one. That's a yeah. very classic one. Uh, I love how I love how we like had this really awesome deep conversation about D Day, and then we're like candy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the, the, the way these were chosen as the top ten is the top ten sellers. Yeah. Not yeah. That, not that someone tasted them and and ranked them, but these are the top. Jolly sellers. Ranchers. Yeah, Jolly really? Ranchers. Well, yeah. yeah, but all these were like mostly mostly chocolate. They weren't like candy candy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jolly Ranchers when they were like a stick, not just a little bite-sized piece. I don't actually. No. Anyway, sweethearts are good too, but they don't. Oh, sweethearts are. Oh yes, they are. Remember when we had push pops? Okay, okay. Children, children, (laughs) calm down. We have a show. Fun dip. Oh my god. Pop rocks. Oh god. Oh, we should see what you did there. I'm getting childhood flashbacks right now. You know, you know how much editing I have to do now. Wait, you mean you're not going to like include all of this? Oh God! All right, you have to include all of this, my dear Kirsten. Yes. You're ready to give us another brilliant moment? Hey, but we're just trying to be happy, okay? Because Kirsten's about to bum us out. Last weekend on the McFiles, hosted by right-wing host Chris McDonald. McFiles? Mc- <laughs> that sounds like a happy before, meal. Before somebody caught on to that. Oh and you gosh. thought I was going to bum you out. <laughs> well, we're not at the punchline yet. Hey, can so. I have a, a McFile with extra fries, please? <laughs> Guest, Richie Wilson of World for Jesus Ministries oh. explain how her prayers were responsible for shutting down a demonic presence near a traffic intersection in her community. <laughs> no, that was a traffic cop. That's not a demon. Oh my gosh. I wonder if like... Okay, I'm so excited to hear where this goes. <laughs> Let me give you a really small scale example. 
the street, just a couple street lights up from my house when I first moved here. Now I've been in my home for 18 years. When I first moved here, I noticed that there were accidents at that intersection all the time. Let me guess, they put in a stoplight. <laughs> and solved no, everything. That is not what solved it. It's it's red like a demon, the stoplight. Now, you know, that was nearly 20 years ago. So I told my mom, I said, Mom, every week there's a major accident in this intersection. Every single week. And she said to me, she said, why don't you start praying and bind it up? <laughs> that's that's like oh, an answer a parent gives for a child to go away. Yeah, but of start course. Praying. Of course. It makes so much nonsense. <laughs> and so... One time, I was going to that intersection, and the spirit of intercession gripped my heart so heavily. The spirit of intercession gripped my heart. Right. <laughs> I gotta tell you, you I don't my... even know what I was weeping over. I have no idea. The spirit but of intercession. But I know something took place in that intersection, and I began to weep before the Lord and just repent. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept. The spirit of and intercession. I... You oh grabbed me at a 90-degree angle. <laughs> and I'm telling you, fatalities in that intersection stopped. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, there you go. She prevented future accidents through the demon slaying power of her tears. Yes. Now, is she there wow. every weekend? Or just Apparently, the it just, one intercession? Apparently, just. Intercession of the intersection. Yeah, just the one. <laughs> only did the one. It only happened wow. once, and apparently they if just. If you press stopped. on the crosswalk, it says walk or don't demon right. walk or something like that, you know? <laughs> now it says pray. Pray, don't pray. Pray, don't pray. Nope. Serious, oh. you cry, not pray. Just cry. She's crying. Cry. Oh, cry. Cry for Jesus. She was crying. So you could see Jesus, you know, as a cross guard with a sash and, I mean, and a sign. Just, I mean, you, you, when you think of the millions of dollars that the traffic control um, ag- agencies and departments in we every could, city are going save. to save. Yeah. Wow. Think of all the candy we could buy. From the, you know. <laughs> Jesus saves all right. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> So oh, she, I, she I stopped like the it. she stopped the accidents with her tears. I'm gonna. And, do you think could could we do that with an atheist intercession? Do you think? I don't know. I, I mean, we, know. we could have the spaghetti, you know, yeah. the, the colander yeah. on our head and and try, you know, praying. Trying to, to the flying spaghetti monster. Yeah, I mean, you might favor small cars. Yeah, <laughs> because Nelly appendage is. I've heard stories where somebody got out of a ticket for going through a red light because they realized they were doing it, just realized they couldn't stop and just screeched like a pterodactyl straight through the intersection. Uh-huh. Cop was laughing so hard, apparently didn't give him a ticket. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a, a non-prayer intersectionist. I can get a t-shirt for that. Awesome. Is that it? That is it for that today. That is it for this week. Okay, well, thank you so much. That's Bridget a goodie. Person. That's yes. a goodie. And you, did I bum you out? No, no not at all. There you go. But be, be sure to look well, both ways before if, you cross a demon. If I look too hard at how stupid this person is, then I'll get bummed out. But. Well, as long as you look well, if you look too hard in any, anywhere, you're going to find that. If you, if you look both ways and throw some holy water before crossing an intercession, you should be, should, should be fine. You know? I guess you can have to put signs up saying, caution, weeping woman. And that would... <laughs> That would stop. Oh, no, but no, no weeping angels. I was about to say, no, you put up the sign, caution, weeping angel, and you see how many Whovians drive by. <laughs> they will not blink. Ever. <laughs> All right. So let's go to a break. And when we come back, we'll have Rex Burt with us. We'll talk about cults. So stay so with us. So we're going to talk about my family? Sure. <laughs> I'm sure you want to join in for that one for sure. So stay with us. In a world 
torn apart by a lack of reason. And I think it should be religion treated with ridicule and hatred and contempt. And I claim that right. In the morning. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Stanley from the Right to Reason podcast. And if you subscribe now, you'll get free. Learn more about the broadcast at therighttoreason.com. Do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. That's why we say we're woo-free since 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm, or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us. this point of mystery, and in gets invoked God. This, over time, has been described by philosophers as the God of the gaps. If that's where you're going to put your God in this world, then God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. When you're gone for days, on your own. All right, well, our next guest is a returning champ, Rex Burks. He was one half of the skeptical Texans. He's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Rex, welcome back to Left of the Valley. Thank you so much for having me. You say that now, but you haven't learned your lesson the first time, obviously. <laughs> Rex, for those of us who might not have heard you the first time you were on with Owen, would you be maybe so kind to give us a brief bio as to who Rex Burks is? Absolutely. So I am a former fundamentalist Christian, and we're going to get into the particular denomination I grew up in. Um, and I have been a equally passionate atheist since the year 2000. So this is almost the 20-year mark of my of my atheism. And as we talked about last time, um, my particular atheist activism involves a lot of dialogue with Christians and then bringing those learnings back to the um, atheist community through presentations and podcasts. And we talked about that last time. So this time, um, hoping to tell you the story of the cult that I grew up in, and I'm, I'm very comfortable using the word cult, mm-hmm. um, and some of the takeaways from that and how it might differ from some other experiences. Perfect. You know, when, when, when people hear the word cult, they think of a group of about 10 individuals and dressed up in a funny costume and drinking cyanide to try to get on their spaceship onto a comet. But the word is not doesn't just apply to the fringe like that. It also applies to things that could only be considered religious movement altogether. Uh, yeah, and, and actually that, that word cult is probably a good place to start because I, I freely use that word when I talk about my own childhood, but... I certainly would have never used that at the time. At the time, we vehemently denied that we were a cult, mm-hmm. um, even though we, we clearly fit any definition of it. My, my favorite sort of homemade definition of the word cult is 
a cult is a small religion that you're not part of. Um, because no one ever calls a big religion a cult, and no one ever calls their own religion a cult. So a cult is a small religion you're not part of. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm going to talk about a lot of the weird things that we did and believed, but they're probably not any weirder than the things that Roman Catholics do and believe or, you know, any other church. It's just that, you know, at a certain size point, nobody calls it a cult anymore. No, oh, don't worry. we got a Mormon sitting with us today. So if you want to talk about cult and weird beliefs, there we go. <laughs> Right. Just give me well, so, so, and, and, and that's a good point. I mean, there are a lot of even, even Christians and certainly atheists today who will call Mormonism a cult and who will call Jehovah's Witness a cult, who will call Scientology a cult, certainly. Mm-hmm. And I'm comfortable with all of those labels. But the, the goofy things that Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists and, and uh, uh, Mormons believe are no goofier than the things that Southern Baptists and, and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians believe. We're just used to those beliefs. You exactly, know? exactly. Exactly. Um, so, a religion essentially is a cult who made it big to the big times, right? Right. I exactly. Really, exactly. I, I really like your definition, Rex. I think it's. I, I think it. It really is better than any definition that I've heard. It's. It's. It's on point. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for sharing that one. And you yourself, well, Rex, you're welcome. You, Rex, yourself, you were part of a uh, movement that was called. Uh, Repeat it again. It's the uh, Worldwide Christchurch or something like that. The Worldwide Church of God. Okay. And all of those words mean something. Uh, Worldwide, we called ourselves worldwide because we had congregations in every country, um, or aspired to anyway. I don't know that we were in every country, but certainly dozens of countries. Um, The Church of God, because, you know, we thought that God had founded a church and it was us. And, and, so let me, let me give you a brief history of, of how this came about. There was a man named Herbert W. Armstrong, Mm -hmm. and Herbert Armstrong was the founder of the Worldwide Church of God, and he started the church in the 1930s, and in the 1930s, Herbert Armstrong was working as an advertising executive in the Pacific Northwest, um, Eugene, Oregon area, and he had been part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, and then... um, I think through some challenge from his wife, he started doing more Bible research, and he decided that he was God's end-time apostle, that he was the one who had the truth and nobody else did, and that's why he started God's One True Church. And um, we would have said that all, all of the other Christian churches, and Herbert Armstrong said this, all of the other nominally Christian churches were actually Satan's counterfeits Mm -hmm. of God's one true church. So this was not an ecumenical position at all. Um, You know, we were were the one true church. Herbert Armstrong was God's end-time apostle, and all of the other people, the the Baptist, Methodists, the the Catholics, all of the others were actually being deceived by Satan, and they were truly worshiping Satan in Satan's churches. That's what we said. Yeah, um, and it's an easy thing to say for any cult or denomination because it's actually kind of quoted in the Bible. In the Bible, Jesus right. does say imposters will show up, which of course can mean anything. You know, so any religion of can course. say the exact same thing. You know, no, we're the real one. Remember, Jesus said imposters will show up. So these guys over there are imposters. Exactly. And they say the same thing about you, of course. Um, so. The reason that he decided that he was the end-time apostle and he was the only one with God's truth that God was revealing is because he started reading his Bible. And um, he's certainly not the first person to find himself in the Bible, but, um, you know, this is a good time to talk about the things that made us distinctive because they're all biblical ideas. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
if you read the Bible, starting with the Ten Commandments, God commands a seventh-day Sabbath, which is Saturday, right? And, mm-hmm. and Orthodox Jews today still keep sundown Friday to sundown Saturday as the Holy Sabbath. And That's when correct. you keep the Holy Sabbath, you don't work on that day, you don't play football, you don't watch TV, you just rest, and you you know, don't do any work, and you think about God and read the Bible. And so Herbert Armstrong correctly pointed out that the Bible many, many times commands a Saturday Sabbath, and never changes it to Sunday, never. And so all of Satan's churches, you know, took God's commandment that that even Jesus said would never pass away mm-hmm. and changed it from Saturday to Sunday. Mm. And, and and it's completely unbiblical. And so everybody that, that heard Herbert Armstrong make this argument, he didn't say, trust me, take my word for it. He said, go read your Bible, see what it says. And you know what? He was right. It yes. does command Saturday and it never changes it. And then he said, uh, look at the annual holy days in, in Leviticus and elsewhere. Um, you know, God commands the days of unleavened bread, the Passover, festival of trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, all of the, and they all have Hebrew names as well. But all of these seven annual holy days are again commanded in the Old Testament, said it would be a sign between God and his people forever. Jesus apparently kept the festivals. Um, at no point is it changed, not even by Paul. And yet modern Christians ignore those days mm-hmm. and think of them as Jewish. And Herbert Armstrong said, no, we're going to keep these because they're commanded and they're never done away with in the Bible. And, you know, don't take my word for it. Go read the Bible. And, you know, people like my parents heard this and read the Bible and said, you know, hey, what? Herbert's right. <laughs> it's, it's commanded and it's never changed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same story on the kosher food laws. Same story on tithing. Same story on... Um, uh, you know, the, the the pagan festivals, as he would say, Christmas, Easter, Halloween. He says, look, these days are not only not commanded in the Bible, they're also holy or festivals that clearly have pagan origins that predate Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, Christmas, Christmas far predates Christianity. Yes. So does Easter. Um, you know, these are tied to, to seasonal holidays from paganism. And yes. so um, it was a compelling argument, you know, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, Herbert Armstrong never had to convince his audience that the Bible was the Word of God. That was a given. Everyone in America and and, in most countries believed the Bible was the Word of God. Um, All he had to do is say, go read the Bible and see that I'm right about the Sabbath and the Holy Days and the kosher laws and the tithing. None of these things are ever changed, not by Jesus, not by anybody. And yet all these so-called Christians that ignore them are actually worshiping Satan. Okay. Uh Um, And so... This is how, you know, he was the only one that was that was taking this particular approach. And so, therefore, he was God's chosen one to bring the truth. And that's a term we used all the time, the truth. Um, and so that's how we decided, he decided, that this was the one true church. So my personal connection began, um, I was born in 1973, but before that, in 1967, so six, seven years before I was born, my parents got married and went off to college in Iowa at a Bible college. They were both Baptist. And the first semester at their Baptist Bible college, they heard Herbert Armstrong on the radio. And he was on media everywhere, radio stations and, and magazines and then later television. But they heard Herbert Armstrong on the on the radio saying these same things about read your Bible, prove it, don't take my word for it, they're all wrong. And, you know, so my parents, obviously believing the Bible was the Word of God, took Herbert up on his challenge, and within 
within a semester and a half, they got kicked out of Baptist Bible College for asking the wrong questions. Um, wow. And so that was, so they joined the cult in, in 1968, having heard it first in 67. And, um, and so that's what I was born into. So the truth, the true church, God's one true church, the called ones, this is what I was born into in 1973. It was the only reality I ever knew. We were special. We were lucky to be called. Um, and it also, it always meant that we were the weird kids, right? We couldn't go to anything on Friday night. We couldn't eat that pepperoni pizza. Um, we didn't have any Christmas presents to talk about after winter break. Um, and so um, I think in, in a sense, it sort of toughened us up. You know, you, you're, you're get comfortable being in the minority. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's why I'm comfortable now being an atheist in Texas, because I grew up in, in the minority. <laughs> um, but when I talk about it's interesting, you would find people my age that had a similar experience with this with this group who would emphasize the hardship, emphasize how, you know, painful it was to be the weird kid and how painful it was to to, um, you know, not be able to go out on Friday nights and not really be able to have friends in the world. And I'll put quotes around the world. Um, but I try not to I try not to put too fine a point on that because to me, it's important to stress that the reason to reject these ideas is not because they were painful or not because I had a bad experience. That's not the reason to reject them. The reason to reject them is because it's not true. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the truth question. And, and I, I, am, I am always watching, anytime there's a new documentary out about Scientology or Mormonism or whatever, I always watch them with interest. Um, but I always get annoyed when they sort of focus on, oh, look at the suffering and look at the ostracism and, and therefore that's the reason you should get out. Yeah. And, and I always, I mean, you know, banging my hand on the table saying, no, the reason to get out is because it's a lie. Yeah. You know, I don't care if you have a wonderful experience, um, get out because it's a lie because you want truth in your life, not, not make-believe, not fantasy. No, um, but, because, but, but the idea of selling them the, the emotional pain it probably is a better sell especially if you're doing a documentary than sell them essentially just truth well exactly but also because you know if you're if you're hbo or netflix or whoever's doing the, the documentary you know that a huge portion of your audience is christian mm. and so it's easier to sort of sell the idea that you know this is your this is we're sort of leading you down the path of the woo-woo you know as long as it feels good as long as they're Everybody's happy then these eyes ideas are okay yeah and i'm like no if, if you if you do this and everybody's happy and it's perfectly wonderful well, these ideas are still lies <laughs> you know so it's not one one can't cure the other um and i also you know a lot of people who would talk to me about this are trying to find that smoking gun trying to find you know how did this really damage you and injure you as a child and you know i'm sure i can come up with something but you know what for the most part i had a pretty good childhood and, and you know it, it, not only were we not suffering because of this and, and and i know some people did so i'm not speaking for anyone but myself here but not only did i not suffer so much but it was it was a badge of honor you know we were proud to be the chosen ones we were proud to know the truth I, it was almost a, a smugness about it um mm. you know they're all deceived and, and we're the lucky ones um and when I talk to people my age that, that grew up in the cult, there are, there are a variety of experiences. There are some of my peers who 
never really bought into it intellectually. It was just their parents' church. They hated it. They had to go. They hated that they couldn't do anything on Friday nights and hated that they couldn't keep birthdays and Christmas and stuff. But um, but they didn't ever believe the, the dogma. Um, and I always sort of point out, I really did. Like, I was a hook, line, and sinker believer. I thought it was all true. And so... In 1991, I graduated from high school, mm-hmm. and the only college that, that you could have even talked about going to was God's college. It was the church college, and so I did. Um, even though I was a straight-A student in high school at, at one of the best schools in the state of Louisiana, I could have gone scholarship to a, to a meaningful state university or something, but instead, I went to you know, rural East Texas to, the, to Ambassador College, which was the church school. Mm-hmm. So, so here's the thing is that in 1986, so while I was in middle school, Herbert Armstrong died. He was an old man. He had started this church in the thirties and we never thought Herbert was going to die because he was going to, you know, the end was near. And so when he died in 86, um, we thought, uh, you know, we didn't know what to think, but they told us that Herbert had picked his successor and it was a man named Joseph Tkach. And we didn't really know Joseph Tkach, but we treated him like the apostle too. And so from 86 to, to 94, Joe Tkach was in charge. And then in, in halfway through my senior year, so this is like December of 1994, um, Joe Tkach got in front of the whole student body, faculty, everybody there in, in Big Sandy, Texas, and said, guess what? We've got it all wrong. We're not the only true church. And Damn. this is the only instance I've ever heard of where a cult reformed itself. But uh, Joe DeCotch preached a sermon and said, you know, there's a new covenant in the Bible that replaces the old covenant. We don't have to do Sabbath. We don't have to do kosher. We don't have to do holy days. We don't have to do tithing. And we're not the only true church. Wow. So That's a hell so, of a 180 change. Yes. And, and ironically, this sermon occurred on Christmas Eve, which would have been nothing to us, but it happened to be December 24th, 1994. And so this was an earthquake. I mean, think about, think about Little Rex. I'm, you know, I'm 21 years old at this point, maybe 22, and yeah, 21. And all I had ever known was that I was special because I was in God's one true church. And here's the man that I would have drunk Kool-Aid for telling me we've got it all wrong. And... So that was a that was an earthquake in my life. Um, and as far as the church goes, it basically ended that day. Um, about a third of the people left and started a new group to do it the old way. Yeah. And about a third of the people um, sort of embraced the new way, but thought there's no reason to stay here now. I'll just go join a Baptist church on the corner, and they did. And then I think a, probably a third of us just sort of floated and did nothing, and that was me. Um, it's probably worth going back and talking about, though, how we thought of our place in the world. Um, you know, this was this was Satan's world, and we were waiting for Christ to return and set up His kingdom. Now, Re- Rex, Christ- let, me, let, let me interrupt for a second here. I got a couple sure. of questions I got to ask to to, to, yeah, to focus. Uh, first of all, you, the the church, the original church, and the original uh, quote unquote prophet was referring to the Bible a whole lot. Which version of the Bible would you guys use? Um, he would have preferred King James, but King James. probably not for any scholarly reason. He wasn't a scholar. No, I think but... he just liked the flowery language of it. Okay, King James, it was. Uh, and the uh, the original prophet there, uh, did he ever 
espouse himself as something. I mean, so far he seems to be like a, a bit of a teacher. He uh, adheres to the Bible, but he never really seems to um, label himself as something beyond that. You know, if you take, for example, uh, you know, I'll take uh, I'll take the Mormon example of Joseph Smith. You know, he was, you know, he's not just a, a prophet. He's almost like part of the tree, that guy. And he's like, he's coming back or he's got something like that. Did he ever kind of uh, have these kind of ambition or he was just a, a regular teacher kind of guy? No, I mean, he definitely, he definitely saw himself and described himself as absolutely singular in human history. Mm. Like he was the... Um, you know, he was the end time apostle. That's the title he took. But did he ever see he was coming back? Or he was going to be resurrected or blah, 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 or anything like that? Well, right. So, okay, so this is this is how we saw eschatology. We did not believe that the dead were in heaven and hell. We didn't believe that. That's not biblical. Oh. Um, instead, we believed in a future resurrection. The, the New Testament talks far more about a resurrection of the dead. And we taught that there would be three future resurrections. Um, so the first thing that would happen was that Christ would return. And anyone who was in God's church, that's us, when Christ returns, would immediately be converted to a spirit being um, for the rest of eternity. So you would lose your physical body and become a spirit being immediately. You would never have died. Um, that, so that, that happened at the moment of Christ's return, similar to what evangelicals will call the rapture, though we didn't use that term because it sounded too Protestant. So go, um, going from from an able-bodied person to a direct spirit, that is like the best weight loss yes. program I ever heard in my life. <laughs> yes. Right. You know, you lose right. all those unwanted pounds like that. It's amazing. Exactly. Um, you can also lose a lot of weight just by moving to the moon. Um, <laughs> okay, so... So... That was the that was what was going to happen to us, and since we thought the end was imminent, we thought we would be in that group that was just caught up in the clouds with Jesus. Only we never said Jesus; we always said Christ. Mm. Um, we avoided language that sounded Protestant, so we wouldn't have said rapture, though that's the scene we're describing, and we wouldn't have said Jesus; we always said Christ. Um, and so, if you had, so there were three resurrections that would follow that moment of of the of the then living going up with with Christ. The, the first resurrection would be what we called the first fruits. Those would be anyone who had been in God's true church and had died, you know, in good standing with God's true church. So, like, if my, you know, if my parents had died while they were still in good standing in the church, they'd be in that first resurrection. And that was immediately after Jesus' return. Um, and we got that, actually, from some language in Paul. Paul talks about you know, don't worry, those who've died, they'll they'll be turned just like you'll be turned. So, like, we were the ones that were still living, and they were the ones that had died, but it happened in the same moment when, when Christ returns. Okay, um, the second resurrection would be everybody who had never been in God's church. And we were not terribly concerned. Like, we didn't ever say, if you're not in our church, you're going to hell. Like, we didn't believe that. We believed you just weren't being called right now. It's not your time. And so we had no sort of um, ambition towards personal evangelism. It was not our job to convert our neighbors and our friends and our family members who were not part of the church because they were just being deceived by Satan. It, they weren't being called by God. It wasn't their time. Well, hold on and a so, second. Doesn't Jesus just say to go out and preach the good news? He does. And, I, and so put a pin in that. And I'll tell you how we okay, accomplished let's that. Let's put a pin in that. Um, and so the second resurrection would be you and you know everybody else who was never part of the cult. They instead would be raised not to a spiritual body, but back to a living physical body. Oh, great. And then at that point, they would be taught by Jesus and by us. They would be taught the truth 
about the Bible and God and God's law, and they would be given the choice. And of course, they would all choose because, you know, when you're standing there, why would you why would you jump on the fire if you didn't have to? So just as I was finally falling asleep and sleeping in on a Saturday morning, I have to get up for Jesus now. Yes. Only after he comes back, though. Okay. Jeez. So. So that was the second resurrection, which was, you know, by far the largest resurrection. And we believed that those people would all be fine because they would all choose the truth. Now, there's a third resurrection. And if you're keeping score, there's only one group of people left that hasn't been raised at this point. And it's the people who have been in good standing with the church, but then left. They've known the truth and they've rejected the truth. These are the the excommunicated, the disfellowshipped, the, the rebellious. And... They will be raised from the dead in this third resurrection, but it'll only be long enough to say, see ya, and then they get kicked into a lake of fire. (laughs) Jesus. Yes, Jesus, exactly. Um, And so it was was a lake of fire. That's the term we use, not, not hell. And it, and it was not an eternal torment like you, like you hear Protestants talk about. Instead, it was just an immediate snuffing out. Like, what would really happen if a physical body got dropped into a lake of fire, right? You'd just be, you know, you'd be like at the end of the Terminator and you're gone. Um, okay, so... They have the worst beaches on that lake of fire, by the way. Really like the yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lots of grass. Um, so those are, that, that was how we viewed the end time. So on the one hand, um, our cult was not at all ecumenical and when we would say all the other churches are Satan's churches. But on the other hand, we weren't damning anybody. I mean, the only the only unforgivable sin really was to leave the church. Mm. And since most people weren't in the church, they couldn't commit that sin. That's a bit um, of a red flag, isn't it? <laughs> when right. you're part of a church uh, and the only big sin is to leave the church, that's a big red flag for a cult right there. Well, it is. Um, but, you know, we, we had certainly plenty of scriptures about people that turned their back on the truth. And so um, that was that. Um, you know, in my in my childhood, and, and and some of what I'm about to say probably is true for for a lot of you know evangelicals and fundamentalists, um, which we certainly we were not evangelical, but we were fundamentalists, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But fundamentalists, we believed every word of the Bible was true. I mean, I believed the earth was you know created by God, and that Adam and Eve were the first humans, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were not evangelical in the sense that we did not practice personal evangelism. We practiced corporate evangelism. Like we all tithe. Tithing was the engine that kept this going. And that meant 10% of gross income directly to Pasadena, California to the church headquarters, 10% of gross. And we had about 150,000 members at the peak. So, you you know, you get 150,000 people to send you 10% of their income. That's a lot of money. And there's millions and millions flowing in. And they used most of that money to buy radio time, TV time, publish mm-hmm. magazines, yeah. mail all over the world. Um, so it was it was corporate evangelism, but we would have never gone to the, the cashier at the grocery store and said, oh, you know, do you, do you want to know about God's one true church? We never said anything like that. Mm. Um, we left it up to the professionals. We just sent our money in and let them do the, the broadcast. And the broadcasts were on hundreds of TV and radio stations at the peak all over the world. And they would mostly focus on current events, like Herbert Armstrong did the broadcast mostly on the radio, and then when it got to be the television era, his son, Garner Ted Armstrong, mostly did the broadcast. But they would both focus on 
oh, look, this is the news that's happening in Germany, and, and this is why it was prophesied in uh, Daniel yeah, or in yeah. the book of Revelation, you know, that this is this or that means it's the end time. It would, they would always sort of tie it to biblical prophecy. Yep. They wouldn't talk about the church's distinctive so much. Um, they wouldn't really talk about the church. They would just say, oh, and if you want to know more about this, we've got some free literature. You can call this 800 number, one 800 4 two, three, four, 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 four. And you can call the number and we'll give you some uh, free literature about this. Mm -hmm. And the book would be, you know, they'd mail out something about, you know, this is how America and Great Britain were prophesied in the Bible and our role in the world. And, you know, German reunification is the Holy Roman Empire talked about in, in Revelation and blah, blah, blah. They always had some tie on current events, but the, the end result was you're living in the end time. See, the Bible proves you're living in the end time, which obviously people have been saying for centuries, but we yeah. were we were no different. And because it's the end time, you know, your eyes are now being opened by this contact with our church. And so, you know, don't you want to learn more? And I should talk about how we had church. We did not because we always thought the end was near, like, like next month. Um, we never... We never built church buildings the way other churches do. We always, always had our Saturday services just in some rented union hall or, or empty theater or bingo hall or, um, you know, whatever, whatever room or auditorium we could rent, that's what we did. So mm -hmm. there was never, you could never drive down the street and see a big white building that said Worldwide Church of God. Um, other than the headquarters in Pasadena, California, and the college campus in Big Sandy, Texas, other than those two places, we didn't really have physical property. We just rented all the local congregations. Like I, I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, and our local congregation met in a rented room. Um, and we had probably 300 people and we set up folding chairs. And my wife grew up in Houston, same thing. They just rented an, an auditorium. And because there was no point in building a building that would last 50 years because there was no 50 years, right? Yes, yes, true. And so um, uh, because of that, you know, we, we had no walk-in traffic. You would have, it would have been a secret where we met. And you know, this is before the internet, so it's not like you get on some chat group and find some disgruntled member that would tell you. Um, you know, there was no, you, 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 no one from the public would know where we met, even if they knew there was a Worldwide Church of God, they wouldn't know where their local congregation met. And so instead, um, from the national media, if you called the 800 number, you would be sent the free literature, and after a couple of months of them sending you letters and literature, then you would be asked if you wanted a visit from the local pastor. He would come to your house and probably visit with you several times and talk to you about the truth and the church and all that. If, if after meeting with the pastor a couple of times, he determines that you are being called by God, I don't know how he determines this, but that's his job. Um, <laughs> lucky for me, I was born into it, but my parents had to go through this. Um, then he would reveal the location of our weekly Saturday meeting and you could come to church. And I just, so I just had an um, image of, I just had an image of your pastor, you know, talking to you and it's a bit like a Ron Popeil infomercial, you know. But wait, there's more. Right. <laughs> you act now and you can be called in yeah. the church. Well, well, right. Well Rex, did did Herbert W ever visit any of the local churches? Did you have a chance you know, e even in Big Sandy to to meet him or to hear him deliver a sermon personally? Yes. Okay, so one of the things I mentioned earlier is that we had um, 
an annual Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day festival. Um, it happened in the fall, like harvest time. It's one of the things in Leviticus, if you read what the ancient Jews did. And the, for the Feast of Tabernacles, you didn't stay in your local area. You traveled to a designated feast site. So whereas we might have I don't know, 200 local congregations around the country, we would have maybe seven um, Feast of Tabernacle sites, or eight or nine maybe, um, and they would rent out like a big sports arena or something, or a basketball arena. So it was, a, it was a much larger gathering once a year for seven days. And for those seven days, you would stay in a motel or a campground in that other city, and you would go to that arena every day for church services, two, three hours of, of church. And Herbert Armstrong would come visit those sometimes. So the, the few times from my childhood where I actually saw Herbert live in person and then Joe Koch later live in person, it was always at the feast. It was always at one of those big, you know, regional gatherings. Did it um, have much of an impact to you, on you as a child? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was like, it was like seeing, you know, Elvis and, and Jesus all at once. I mean, oh, this, yeah. he was he was superstar. Did he have um, the same haircut as Elvis? <laughs> no, that would have made him cooler. Um, and so... So, yeah, so the, the few times I saw him, either one of them live in person, it was it was at one of those feast sites. Um, but um, every year at the feast, he would do a live what they called a, a, a microwave transmission at the time. It was using, I think, later satellite technology. He would do a live um, sermon with all of the feast sites hearing him live at the same time um which you know for mid 80s that was pretty cool technology mm -hmm. um and so he would be up on the big screen like the wizard of oz and you know he would talk about how you know feast sites in africa and australia are listening to this in the middle of the night and you know those of you in the united states are in different time zones and but you're all hearing my voice at the same time you know that kind of thing um wizard of oz is probably an apt metaphor yes um, it is <laughs> i was about and to say so, um and then during the year, Herbert would never come to, you know, to our local church area, but maybe once a month or every two months, we would get an audio cassette um, that would be our church service that would be him preaching. And so the local preacher did most of the sermons on a week to week basis, but every one to two months, we would have a cassette from headquarters. That's the word we used. And it would usually be Herbert Armstrong or some, you know, other high um, evangelist in the church. And it would be some sermon, usually on some important topic that they wanted everybody to hear. Um, usually, and, and you know, there was always the theme of the end is near and we need your money because you were, you know, you were absolutely commanded to tie 10%, but you were highly encouraged to tithe even more, you know, donate even more to the church because what else matters besides preaching the gospel, right? Um, and so in terms of impact on you know, my little developing brain as a child, there, I think there was a lot of baggage that comes from the very, very short-term thinking of the future doesn't matter, you know, and whereas most kids will sit around for hours thinking about, you know, someday I want to have a big mansion and I want to have this fancy sports car and I want to have this hot wife and I want to have this super job and I want to travel. We didn't do that. We didn't, we didn't dream about the future because there was no future you know the only future we knew was that any minute now christ is going to return and this whole world's going to not matter you know yeah um and so i i know in subtle ways that that affected a lot of us um you know and how might i have 
thought about my future and made better plans if if I thought there was a future. Um, and that's why when I talk about that moment in 1994, it really was an earthquake. You know, it wasn't just that I lost everything I'd ever believed that that happened. But I also, you know, just shook the etch sketch on what the rest of my life is supposed to look like. And I'm 20 years old. Yeah, yeah you basically um, had to reframe so, the future that you thought had been so clearly drawn out already. Exactly, exactly. Um, and and that, that, that future just got erased, and now I've got to... I've got to, oh, okay, so what am I supposed to do with my life? Um, you know, and, Rex, and oh, by the way, you're not special. <laughs> you know, okay. Rex, when you, when you were saying that uh, you, you guys received cassettes from Herbert and you had to play the cassettes and it was a sermon, I was so hoping that one of these cassettes would have like a, a Mission Impossible, you know, thing kind of thing. Good evening, <laughs> Mr. Hunt. You know, if right. this is the mission you, you, uh, you wish to accept there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I Let me tell you how I think about Herbert Armstrong. I... I joked earlier about, you know, I would have drunk Kool-Aid for this man, but but all joking aside, when, when people talk about Jonestown, and I've heard so many people say some version of, how could you be so stupid? Why would you drink poison Kool-Aid? You know, but but let me tell you something. I would have drank it. Absolutely. I'm glad I was never asked to, or I wouldn't really? be here talking to you today. But I absolutely would have drunk it, because here's what we believed. We believed the end is near, and we believed that there was an Armageddon coming, and... Um, you know, a terrible war, and Satan was going to be pushing the armies of, of the earth around, and blah, 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 earthquakes and pestilences, and, and that we believed that God would provide us us with a place of safety, that's the term we use, a place of safety mm-hmm. during that tribulation until Christ returned. And I'm telling you, if, if Herbert Armstrong had sent out that cassette that said, okay, guys, here's how it's going to go down, the way we're going to get to the place of safety is to leave these physical bodies. Um, as you're listening to this tape, the ushers are passing out a drink to help you exit wow. your physical body and go straight to the place of safety. Nine, 10, 11, 12 year old Rex, I would have chugged it down because oh. I absolutely believed it. And I believed he wow. wouldn't lie to me. Well, he was a very and, powerful speaker. I mean, he had a, a resonant voice and he had, you know, that sermon delivery that he had and I used to listen to him driving around Texas in in the evenings I would deliberately try to find a find the station where he was broadcasting because he really was an interesting speaker and it was almost hypnotic where you could see where if you were a believer he was the bringer of whatever news you mm. you wanted and wanted to follow and, be, and because, absolutely and because he was so close to, t- to doing his teaching so close to the bible and referring to the bible always uh people automatically as soon as they had one or two example where it did match the bible they kind of his credibility was right through the roof right yeah, of course that's exactly right yeah. that's exactly Right. Well, um, quick question about the, the the tithing, though. If I can go back real quick on it, you're saying tithing ten percent. I don't ever recall seeing that in the Bible, though. Well, it is. Yeah, is absolutely. It? In the old in the Old Testament, it repeatedly is a ten percent tithe of your first fruits to. It was the Levitical priesthood at the time. Oh, but we, okay, we took okay. that as the church. Okay. Um, but actually, it's it's more like thirty percent, and I'll explain that. Um, there's a first tithe, which is every year, every day, all the time, ten percent to the church. There's a second tithe, which everyone was also supposed to pay, which was 10% set aside to attend the annual festivals, which was mostly the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the seven-day trip I talked about. So um, we would have a separate savings account and set aside a second 10% uh, of gross that we would then use to celebrate the festivals. And that's how you know pretty poor families like mine could take trips to California or Florida um, you know, once a year. So that was our Christmas was Feast of Tabernacles. 
Um, now, most financial advisors would not tell a poor family to save 10% of their income to go on a vacation, but that's that's what we did. Um, and then every third year, you paid a third tithe, which was another 10% on top of the 20% I just mentioned. And that also went to headquarters, but it was specifically for the care of the widows and orphans. Um, and so every third year, you're paying 30%. Every other year, you're paying 20%. And then you were expected to give offerings on top of that. You had Holy Day offerings. Every one of those seven annual Holy Days, they would pass the plate. That was the only time they passed the plate at church you know, was I'm on gonna, Holy Days. I'm going um, really to need another job just for all these tithe. I mean, last time I had an well, offering plate, I you'd gave have a, to tithe on that other job, too. Yeah, um, well, last time I had a tithe, and, uh, an offering plate passed in front of me, I gave a coupon for shake and bake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a financial burden, but... Um, you know, it was mostly used to buy the media that, that y'all were talking about, you know, here on the radio and the television. Mm -hmm. And so um, another another real theme in in growing up in this is that angels and demons were a very, very real thing. Um, mm. You know, it wasn't like you might talk about Darth Vader. I mean, we're talking about I really, really believed in angels and demons and angels and demons who could read your thoughts and plant thoughts in your mind. And this was probably the scariest part of my childhood was the constant thought of knowing if I'm having an impure thought, a greedy thought, a jealous thought, a sexual thought, whatever, that God and the angels can read that thought and that Satan and the demons can, can plant those thoughts. And so the prayer was constant fear-based prayer of keep the demons away and keep my thoughts pure and and you know I carried this into my adulthood and I remember when I finally became an atheist in 2000 which is a different story I remember feeling that thing I've heard Julia Sweeney talk about this and others that, that the quietness in my mind my mind is a is a quiet place it's a private place and I can think anything I want and no one's reading my thoughts and and in I know that there are people who've lived 50, 60 years that have never had a quiet moment in their own head because they've always had a gallery of spirit beings watching in and planting thoughts and reading thoughts. And, you know, that's that's I'm sad for them because I know what a difference that makes to have your thoughts be your own. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. Once you enter my brain, it's a one way ticket, man. <laughs> well, um, so, and, and the thing about demons, I mean, it was, we, we would tell stories and in sermons, we'd hear stories about, you know, so-and-so woke up in the middle of the night and there was a demon laying on their chest and they had to argue with the demon and call Jesus to, you know, get rid of the demon and, you know, stories like that. That's a classic it, story of a sleep paralysis. now, but, but, but we believed it. Yeah. That's a classic story of a sleep paralysis, right? And a lot of people that have sleep paralysis right. always wake up with the impression that somebody's actually on their chest trying to choke them, which, of course, now we can explain with science is just simply sleep paralysis. But for somebody who doesn't know, it could very right. well feel like a demon's trying to choke the life out of them. Right. Wow. Um, so, so, you know, if you talked to 10 other people that grew up in this cult, you'd get 10 other stories, and some of them would greatly emphasize abuse and there was a lot of abuse um i didn't personally experience any abuse i can tell you the kinds of abuse there was like for example for a long time herbert armstrong had the doctrine that 
that divorce and then remarriage after divorce was completely disallowed in the Bible. And because divorce isn't recognized, if you're a divorced person who has remarried, you are living in adultery. Mm-hmm. And we would have very, very sincere people, you know, couples that wanted to join the church, you know, couples with children of their own. But if one or the other or both of them had previously been married and divorced, they were not allowed to enter the church without dissolving that adulterous marriage. And so they did. And lots and lots of families. I mean, I don't mean a dozen. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of families were torn apart by people joining the church. It happens today again, and also with Catholics, they they, they don't yeah. go for divorce. They have to annul the marriage. So well, we actually... didn't annul though, and so oh. that was it. And yeah. so there were there were otherwise perfectly happy marriages that ended, um, you know, just so that the two people could could join the church. And that was a lot of heartbreak around that. Yeah. Um, and and you know, children that lost one or the other parent to that. And another one was that we did not believe in doctors or medicine. Um, We believed that if you were sick, that you should get anointed by the pastor and that God would heal you if you had enough faith. And if God didn't heal you, then it was because he chose not to, and you were still a person of faith. And if you got sicker, then you didn't have enough faith. Um, And so, um, like, for example, my wife, she also grew up in the cult. We met in college. Um, She... Her grandmother died of an abscessed tooth, you know, an infection that went into her brain and 50 cents of penicillin would have fixed it. Yes. But we didn't we didn't do that. And she died and she was held up as this great paragon of faith to the whole rest of the family and community, um, you know, for what was essentially a really stupid choice. Um, You know, a life cut very short by decades where literally a few cents of penicillin would have fixed it. And, And. you know, lots of stories like that. There was also a lot of clergy abuse. Um, and I don't mean like raping kids, though I'm sure some of that went on. What I mean is the local pastor was one step below Herbert Armstrong, who was one step below God of the universe. And so the local pastor, you were expected to counsel with about any major decision. And, you know, a lot of times this is just some guy that went to God's college and got anointed as the pastor and got shipped out to who knows where church area. And he has no training as a counselor and has never even done any of the life experiences he's counseling about. And so you did not change jobs without talking to the pastor. You did not get married. You did not buy a house. You did not have a child. And so this this godlike figure of the local pastor was you know, the ultimate arbiter on, no, I don't think you should take that job. I think God wants you to stay in this job and hang on a little bit longer, or I don't think you should move to this other city, or I do think you should, or, you know, I think you need to break up this, this person with this person you're dating because, you know, it doesn't look like to me like that's God's will. Um, and, and people did. And, you know, so as a child, I didn't experience so much of that, but I was very aware of it. And my mother would tell you lots of stories about, um, you know, lives derailed because, you know, the minister thought it was or wasn't a good idea. Um, so, and so, so essentially, a lot of that went on. You, you, your childhood, thankfully, was kind of spared the more horrible signs of the cult. But uh, today as an adult, are there still parts of you that are affected by what you lived through as a child? Oh, absolutely. How could it not be, right? I yeah. mean, I think that it is, I mean, I still... I'm 46 now, and I've been out since I was um, 
you know, 22, 23. Um, so I'm pretty much at the halfway mark now, half of my life in and half of my life not in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was absolutely the singular defining event of my life. Um, and I think one of the things I alluded to early on in this conversation was that, that you know, growing up in um, growing up in, in the minority, I was always the weird kid. Um, I think that is probably the most indelible part of my character that survives the cult. Um, you know, in, in a business setting now or an academic setting or a political setting or a religious discussion, I am perfectly comfortable walking into a room of 50 people that disagree with me and I will roll up my sleeves and start making my case. Like th th that idea that I'm going to be in the minority, that I'm going to be the one with a different idea doesn't scare me at all. In fact, it's my comfort zone. Mm. Um, you know, I am I am a, a passionate progressive liberal. I am a passionate atheist. I am an ethical vegan in, in, in Texas where everyone is a Republican and, and eats meat and, and, <laughs> and goes to church on Sunday. You know, so I think that 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 idea of growing up in the minority and that becoming your comfort zone is probably the first indelible mark. Well, when I would say this. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was going to say the second indelible mark is probably just that idea of, you know, fool me once. <laughs> shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Um, I think I'm much more skeptical now of claims because I came through such dogmatic belief. Um, and I know it didn't affect everyone that way. Some people are, are still subject to skeptical claims, you know, or to, to dogmatic claims. But, um, you know, I think that a lot of my passion for atheism is really just hoping that people will, will embrace truth and reason rather than being fooled by a seductive idea. Mm -hmm. um, because most of the ideas we're fooled by we're first seduced by, right? Um, you know, if this, if this is, if you like the idea that you're going to see grandma again in heaven, you're more likely to believe it yeah, of course. than the idea that grandma is burning in hell, right? Yeah. You're going to believe the idea that you find seductive. And that was certainly the case when we thought we were, you know, uniquely called in all the earth. It was a, it was a heady stuff for a poor kid. Well, back in, in 1994, when everything blew up, the, um, what, what happened to the church itself, did I know Garner Ted was on the radio for for uh, for quite a while, which is a totally different totally different topic. But did did the church under Garner Ted um, revive in any way, or um, what what was the what was the end result? Sure, um, a little bit of everything. So let me let me back up. So in 1978, so this is this is while Herbert's still alive, Ted's still alive. In 1978. Um, Herbert Armstrong and Ted Armstrong basically got a divorce. Herbert was the father and Ted was the son, and they were, you know, the number one and two in the church. They basically split up. And, you know, what we know now is that it was basically a brokered settlement, and Ted took some pastors in some church areas and Herbert kept others. But, you know, it was ostensibly over theological differences, but I think it was really just over control. Um, you know, it's that, that story of fathers and sons that can't get along. Because, because um, so, custody of the kids. So my parents stayed with the Herbert Armstrong group, which was the Worldwide Church of God. Ted took about probably 20, 30 percent of the members at that point and started Church of God International, which was called CGI. And so depending on when you heard Ted on the radio, 
if it was before 78, he would have been speaking for the Worldwide Church of God. If it was after 78, he was still on the radio everywhere, but he was preaching for his own group now called CGI, Church of God International. Um, so when Herbert died in 86, and that's the group my family was in, um, Ted had already been gone at that point for eight years, you know, gone to his own group. Um, and so that's why Herbert appointed Joseph Takach as his successor, not his son, Garner Ted, which you would have thought would be the logical successor, um, because Ted was already in another group. And then Ted lived another decade after that. Um, and so um, in terms of what happened after 94, a lot of the a lot of the ministers, like I said, I mean, just back of the napkin, I'd say about a third of the pastors and the members left and formed a new group called the United Church of God. And they were having none of the changes. They were having none of Takach's new approach. And so they went and started a new group with the same old teachings, but they didn't have any of the assets, right? Um, now, you can, you can get going pretty fast when you've got a lot of people giving you a third of your income, but the mothership that made all the changes still had all of the assets. Mm. They had all that money and all the property in California and Texas and everywhere else. And um, so that corporation that was the Herbert Armstrong Worldwide Church of God that Joseph Tkach, um, you know, utterly changed theologically, that corporation still exists. Um, they changed their name years ago to Grace Communion International, um, GCI. <laughs> and great grace communion um they try to be just as yippy dippy protestant evangelical as they can possibly be and they try not to talk about the old days and the sabbath and the armstrong and all that and if the subject ever comes up they talk about how grateful they are that god freed them from all that deception and you know blah 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 but they kept the money and um that that corporation that still exists has almost no members. Um, so think about this: if you, it would be like, it would be like if you got yourself on the board and got your buddies on the board of some charitable nonprofit, and then utterly changed the mission and ran off all the members. What are you left with? You're left with the assets. And so there are some fat cats in California who pay themselves a big old salary every year to be preaching the gospel. Um, and, you know, I think they make a half-assed attempt at putting out some literature or something, but it's really just the cushiest retirement plan you could ever imagine. Um, and so that group still exists. United still exists. That was the, the group that was formed by the dissenters in 94. Mm -hmm. And then a whole bunch of us are just nowhere. Um, I think, especially for the second generation church members like myself who were born into it, um, and for the ones who attended Ambassador, I think that atheism is probably a much higher percentage than the general population um, because we were always so focused on proving everything. And this sort of gets me to my own story. In, in the year 2000, after five years of not really thinking about it very much, um, I had sort of shaken the church, but I wasn't, I wasn't certainly saying that I don't believe in God or the Bible. I would have just said, I'm not really sure. Um, but. In 2000, I married my first wife, the mother of my daughter, and she had been raised Baptist and didn't know anything about the cult, and she wanted to find a church. And she moved over to Arlington, where I was living, and so she wanted to find a church, and I didn't know anything about the differences between a Baptist and a Methodist and a Episcopalian and a Catholic, and so I started using the internet, and this was a new thing in 2000, and I was typing 
you know, what does a Mormon believe? What does a Baptist believe? What does a Methodist believe? And I was, I was reading online about this, and that's when I stumbled upon Thomas Paine. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Paine, The Age of Reason, was really the fulcrum for me because it asked the question. Yeah, I don't think Paine is a great writer. He wasn't even a great scholar or anything. But he, he asked a question that I had never asked, which was, where did this Bible come from anyway? Why is this the authority? Because our upbringing always just baseline assumed that the Bible was the authority, right? I mean, we didn't question that. Of course, the Bible's the authority. We just thought we were reading it correctly and everyone else was reading it incorrectly. We were making it important and other people were ignoring it. But at no point did did anyone ever ask the question, wait a second, why do we care what the Bible says on any subject? <laughs> you know, the no, Bible, Bible talks about holy days, Bible doesn't talk about Christmas, you know, there's your answer. Well, I mean, why? We took one step back from that with Thomas Paine and said, why do we care about the Bible? And this was this was really the second earthquake in my young life. And it was, you know, 26, 27 at this point. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and I and I, I will say that by sort of by page three of the age of reason, I was an atheist because I realized that the whole house of cards was based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. I had no other evidence for any of this. And, you know, we had never talked about faith very much, except in the context of medical healing. You know, all the stuff about doctrine, we didn't need faith. We had proof. The Bible was the proof. And so when the proof failed, I didn't have any reason to believe. Hmm. And now think about this. This is, you know, almost 20 years ago, and I am, I am weeks into a marriage to a Christian girl when I realize I'm an atheist. Um, <laughs> so... That was that's a whole other story. Um, yes, yes, indeed. but uh, but yeah, that's really what got me so fascinated uh, with you know reading everything I could find about the New Testament and the process of canonization and what we do and don't know about the authorship of those books and the dating of those books and you know all the stuff that I had taken for granted and the House of Cards just crumbled and crumbled and crumbled even more. Um, you know, it was it was all it was always a very flimsy foundation, and mm-hmm. I realized that there was just nothing to it. Um, so in in conclusion there Rex if if anybody out there is finds out that it's, they're still part of a cult and I don't know let's say they're Mormons or something like that what would you recommend they do um, I think I think the question I always come back to is what is true what is true don't don't focus on whether you like it or not don't focus on whether you've been mistreated or not ask the question is this true if you if you've got somebody whose belief is based on the new testament then then learn everything you can about where the hell we got these books from Mm -hmm. because there's ample reason to believe this was entirely a human process and that's not what i would have told you at 19 years old i would have told you it was a magic book inspired by god there's no evidence for that Mm -hmm. um read the books that they tell you not to read go find out for yourself don't worry so much about what the bible says focus on where it came from yeah um and to a mormon i'd say the same thing you know ask yourself if joseph smith was telling the truth ask yourself if this makes any sense read the scholarship read the counter literature that's out there about the claims that he made and the evidence against the veracity of those claims focus on the truth you know it really doesn't matter if you're if you're having a great time and 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 your life is a lie it's worth fixing we only we only have one life if you're having a terrible time um all the more reason but that but to me it's it's the truth you know focus on what is true and be willing to be willing to say i don't want to be wrong you know I talk to Christians all the time now. We talked about this in our last project. 
And I always say to them, look, I'm an atheist. I don't believe the Bible's inspired. I don't believe God is real. But if I'm wrong, I want you to prove me wrong. I want to be proven wrong. I do not want to be wrong. I want to change my mind if I'm wrong about that. And I want the religious folks to say the same thing. I, I want them to passionately, passionately feel free to say to me, I believe in God the Father. I believe Jesus is the only Son. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. I believe the future in paradise is the reward of salvation. Fine, say all that. But then also say, but if I'm wrong, I want to find out. I want to know that. I don't want to be wrong. Yes. Um, and so if you're just willing to do that, just turn that one switch. I think it's going to inform what you read, what you think about, the questions you allow yourself to ask. Um, because, again, you've got this one life, and, and how much of it do you want to spend in a life? Exactly. Be willing to be challenged. Rex, thank Absolutely. you so much for doing all this for us today. I really, really appreciate this. If people want to find out more about you and, uh, and your adventures with Owen and all that, where can they find you? Uh, the best place is skepticaltexans.org. One word, skepticaltexans.org. Um, from there, you can see our blog posts. You can see videos we've done. There's a contact. You can email either one of us. You can link to our Facebook, talk to us that way. You can see a calendar of events of where we're going to be speaking. So all of that is available, skepticaltexans.org. Fantastic. Before and I would we... love to hear feedback from any of your listeners. I'm always happy to, happy to talk to anybody, believer or not. But absolutely. And uh, before I let you go, Rex, I got to have you say, hey, this is Rex Burks, and I took a left at the valley. Hey, this is Rex Burks from Skeptical Texans, and I took a left at the valley. Fantastic. That was perfect. And that was Rex Burks, one half of the Skeptical Texan talking about cults. Oh, what a great cult. Anybody who wants to learn more about Herbert W. or Garner Ted, there might be some recordings, you know, somewhere on the on the Internet. And I would encourage you to, to listen and, and to hear, you know, put yourself back in time and listen to the impact that both, mostly Herbert W., but later on uh, Garner Ted, I mean, had on people who were religious. What, what a story. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to see that Rex, you know, didn't suffer too much. Yeah, exactly. In- because yeah. you hear a lot of these cult stories and you know and you're thinking your first thought as soon as you hear the word cult you're thinking oh my god you know abuse and all that stuff and we hear these stories a lot but also you know there are some cults out there that are, they're fairly sincere about their beliefs and there's nothing wrong with that um it's just that, of course, as atheists, we prefer the truth to, to what is comfortable. And I'm glad to see that Rex, you know, suffer, he did suffer a bit, but, you know, not it could have been much more tragic of a story. He had obviously good parents. Yes, yes, exactly. They were exactly. religious, but they, they, were, they were grounded. Sincere, yeah. You know, exactly. They, yeah. they were grounded, you know, and I'm glad to see that, you know, his, his suffering uh, in, in that cult was minimal yeah. minimal but nonetheless you know the, the 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 point of the story is like he said strive out to find out what is true not what is comfortable well i think that cult also didn't focus on hate and and hating the other other groups it was we're right and that's the way we are yeah. we're not going to you know go out and protest and you know really you know foment a lot of um, uh, um, distrust among among human beings you know, yes. there's always a chance they could join the cult besides we may not be here next month yeah so, so, so you so know let's take advantage of what we have the story I was I was kind of embracing myself as something like really really dreadful of a story but it, it's Strangely hopeful in a way, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know that you know not all people that have been in the calls have suffered these these tremendous horrible stories that we hear. Yeah. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that you should put your guard down and you know 
like I said, like Rex said, you know, strive to find out what is true, not what is comfortable for mm-hmm. your life. And much more uh, growth for yeah. yourself will come that way. He's a great storyteller. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Isn't he? Yes, yeah. he is. Interesting yeah. so, to listen to. We had, we had great fun with that. So thank you so much, guys, for being on the show today. Thank you to Rex Burks for being our guest. And uh, thank you for listening. And you can follow us at uh, leftatvalley.com. You can follow us on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, at LDV Podcast. You can send us an email at leftatvalley at outlook.com. You can send your complaints to Nancy on the third floor. But beware of the incoming knife. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, you can uh, give us a five-star review wherever you find us. It helps us and helps others find the show. If you want to help us, like our friend Freethinker215, you can uh, send us some money at uh, LETV. Oh, sorry, Patreon slash LETV. Okay, coming up. Next week, we'll have the Minnesota Atheist, Hertzy Hertz. That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting. Of course, on the 22nd, we'll have our old friend, the Satanist Liveth Star. She hasn't been on the show for quite a while. She's talking about her book. After that, we'll have our Canadian special for Canada Day. That should be fun. Uh, In July, we'll have The Ginger Snaps with Amy Kuehl. And, of course, we'll also have... uh, a lawyer extraordinaire, Andrew Torres, will come back. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. From opening arg- arguments, and he'll be talking about what the whole abortion thing. And then, of oh. course, legendary atheist Seth Andrews comes oh. back on the show, and we'll be talking about free speech with him. That'll be a fun topic. It will be. So that's what we got planned going down the coming oh, down the pipe. Sounds good. I kept you, you just sort of skipped over the rest of June. It's like, wait a minute, I don't think I'm ready. <laughs> I'm not ready for July yet. Yes. <laughs> good things coming down the pipe. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, Jill. You just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and disappeared. We got a Mormons among our mist out of nowhere. Just popped up. Boop. All right, thank you so much, guys. Until next time. Here comes from culture, only true on a regional scale. Science is universal. Were you to say that Horus isn't real, but Jesus is, or Zeus, Thor, Mithra, Vishnu, you don't believe in them? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Did I, as I was putting my headphones on, did Kevin say it was just going to be you guys talking? No, no, wait no. A minute, wait a minute. Is this, is, this, is this another sexist attempt to uh, have no, an all guys? No, 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 not at all. Kevin, if you've been trying to have an all guys podcast, you're no. going in the wrong direction. Rex, Rex and I just bonded there for a few seconds before you girls came on. That's before all. Before we caught you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm hey, going to stay about 10 miles out of this argument. <laughs> Now let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful That thousands of children are raped by priests And since they're holy men of God, they get away scot-free And the Pope does his very best to keep it on the hush Don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them, we teaching them to respect them Fuck that. The system is broke down, working backwards, and the only action or tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them. The parties of God's hands are bloodstained, millions of murders by believers, and they're all in God's name. And let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful.